and Chris is going to give us a reading um, and then I'll have a bit of a chat with him. I'll throw questions out to you because I'm sure there are a few questions that you would like to ask. And then after that, we will have a short break um, serenaded by a Perry Como. Um, and then after that, it will be David Keenan. So could you put your hands together, please, for Mr. Chris McQueer. I'm just going to read these a wee, a wee quick, a wee extract to a story. Um, it's a story all about my big mate Frank, who works in Berlin, um, and it's called Leathered. So. Frank worked in the jail. As a guard, it was his job to keep the peace within the prison. But this wasn't hard for guys like Frank. Six foot four, and built like the side of the proverbial brick shithouse, and with a temper with a hair trigger, the prisoners regarded Frank with a healthy mix of fear and respect. Frank had a wee game that he'd play with a couple of inmates that he liked. The ones that he liked were just like himself, they were hard as fuck. Frank knew that he was lucky that he wasn't the one behind bars, that maybe in a different life he'd have been the one getting locked up at night. The prisoners knew this as well, and that seemed to be the foundation their mutual respect was based upon. The game that they played went like this. Frank would name a famous person and ask a prisoner if they thought they could battle them. Then the prisoner would name one and ask Frank if he could battle them. Sometimes he'd mix it up a wee bit and ask each other who they wouldn't want to fight or who, despite having the appearance or personality of a hard man, would be quite easy to battle. It was widely agreed within the jail that they could all leather Gordon Ramsay. <laughs> Here, mate, a prisoner called Joe said to Frank, see you to all the most famous Scottish cunts. Who drinks the most handy? Frank quite liked the questions that Joe asked him. He'd once asked Frank if he thought he could take on both of the crankies at the same time. <laughs> then he came up with a plan to take them both on himself, a plan which involved greasing up, Bronson style, and using an unconscious wee Jimmy cranky to beat Ian to death. <laughs> the handiest famous cunt in Scotland. Frank mulled this over while turning over Joe's cell for contraband. See, mate, I think it's Frankie Boyle, maybe, said Joe. In fact, no, I'll tell you who it is. It's Andy Murray's maw. <laughs> See, she looks deep behind the eyes. There's no remorse. She would end you in a heartbeat if you ever said anything about the fucking Glake at Boise Hills. <laughs> I don't know, said Frank. Right, go then. Tell me, who is your hardest famous Scottish cunt? Frank pulled off his latex gloves with a snap and said without hesitation, no, I need, I need to warn you, I wrote this before it turned out that the guy I'm going to say that emerged is a bit of a beast, right? Trigger warning. Me, I know, man. And, um, but it's no, it's done, it's in black and white, and I just need to go with it, and I'm in too deep, so here we go. Terrifying. Hardest famous cunt in Scotland, Alex Salmon. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Salmon! Nah, you're off your fucking head, mate. He's soft as shit. Nah, hear me out, Joe. See, in terms of politicians, he's the hardest, no doubt. Nah, what about him? What about that Mary Black? Nah, see, she's all talk, mate. See, Salmon? Salmon's got the area guy that knows that no cunt can touch him. 
Ja, das ist Frauen. Ja. <lacht> He's got a confidence. No, in fact, you know what? It's an arrogance. He's got that makes me think he could leather anybody he wants. I mean, look at the way the guy struts about. He's ugly as fuck, but he walks like he's the guy after porridge oats, folks. Nah, mate, he can fight. Mark my words. Joe considered everything Frank had said. He'd made quite a compelling case. Aye, do you know what, mate? I think you might be right. I know I'm right, said Frank with a smile. I'm always right when it comes to stuff like this. Cheers. <laughs> Fucking hell. <laughs> Has that ever happened to you before? Was something in your one of your stories you've gone, oh no, that's... I can't read that one out again. I mean. This is the worst example, and I've only just realised how bad it is. <laughs> you should read the Cranky's biography. You might not want to talk about that. Ian. I've heard some stories, mate. I. <laughs> anyway, uh, so last time I spoke to you was on a, a podcast, and I don't think uh, Here We Fucking Go had come out yet. That's right, aye, aye. Um, So has second book. How do you feel about it now and the, the reception that it's had? It's been good, aye, because see when I was writing it, thought I was going like insane because it was just I just couldn't I couldn't get it right this book and mm -hmm. it really ran me up the wall and it got to the stage where I'd been writing it for about 18 months and the deadline was like maybe three months away and I had deleted everything that I'd written up to that point because I just hated it so I then had to write a whole book in like two and a half months or something man just and I'm a like flurry of activity man but I've done it and um, I'm really quite chuffed with how it turned out and um Really, really proud of it. And I'm really glad. The reaction's been really good, so yeah. quite chuffed with Alistair. Anyway. What do you, you kind of, because the first one was incredibly well received. There must have been some kind of worry about, you know, would you be able to follow that up? Was that part of the problem when you were trying to write it? Was it trying to write another Hings? It was part of that, but um, I like trying to write another Hings because I was still in like the mindset of the first book. So the first book is quite, first book Hings is quite, quite kind of daft, quite kind of slapstick, and I was kind of stuck in that frame of mind. You know what I mean? And I was almost just trying to write the same book again, do you know what I mean? And I was like, I'm running out of jokes, you know what I mean? There's only so many times I can kill somebody's dad, do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> um, so yeah. I just, I was feeling that kind of pressure a wee bit, and then I thought, I just took a different approach. I was like, no, I want to make this book feel a wee bit different, and then kind of moved away to the slapstick stuff, go, wrote kind of longer stories, a wee bit weirder, a wee bit darker, just did me a fun, just kind of showing how fried my head is, and <laughs> it's good fun, eh? Because Leather was published as a separate wee book, wasn't it? Aye, that's right, aye. And was that between the two? Aye, that was just a wee kind of like placeholder in between. So that was but was that story, because that story, I think, does exactly what you want it to do. It's still funny, but it's going somewhere a bit darker than it happened previously. Was that a, a, a story that was a kind of landmark? Aye, that was one of the kind of like Eureka moments where I was like, just trying to write kind of daft slapstick stories with toilet humour and they just weren't working. And then had the idea for Leathered. So with Leathered, it's based on my mate, right? So it's based on Big Frank, who works in, in the jail. But he said to me one night, like, oh, I would love to Leather, give me your room. And I was like, right, <laughs> fair play, big man. And then I was thinking about that, and then I was like, I could turn that into a story, I can make that happen, do you know what I mean? So I wrote the story, and I made it as if, I made it so Frank joins Twitter for the first time, and the first thing he tweets is, oh, I want to Leather, Kim Jong Un. But then Frank goes to bed, unbeknownst to him, they're in North Korea. This North Korean kind of dissident has found Frank's daughter and seen his tweet, and she uses him as like a kind of symbol of the resistance against Kim Jong Un and his regime. So he becomes like the poster boy for the resistance, and um, then Kim Jong Un finds out who it is this cunt Frank. 
I'm going to, I need to put him in his place. So they, he comes there and they arrange a big fight in the hydro. And there's like an undercard with like different politicians in that. And um, it's just good fun writing it, man. It's good. Because so. <laughs> I remember you, you were telling me about um, your story, Moth, which I think was one of the first things you kind mm -hmm, of wrote mm -hmm. as a full story. Aye, aye. And there was, a, it was, again, it was somebody just saying, oh, you should have seen what happened. There was a moth in this guy's ear and he kept aye, pushing aye, it further aye. in. Aye. And then you took that and just expanded it out as far as you could. Is that, aye, is that kind of what you do, you think? You, you, you little bits of conversation, aye. little ideas or something that someone said, and you, it just sparks off something else? It is, aye. There's just loads of things that people say to me. I'm pals with some kind of weird people, and they, <laughs> they tell me weird shit all the time, and it just, it just sticks in my head, and I just think, aye, I could, I could do something like that. Do you know what I mean? So one with the moth, it was like, um, I mean, it's a joiner. He was working down in, down in England somewhere. He was driving his works van. He had the window down. And uh, this, this moth flies in, flies in his ear, and he's like, what the fuck, man, how am I going to get this out? And he's like pushing his finger in, he's pushing the moth in deeper and deeper. I was like, Jesus Christ, mate, what happened then? And he's like, oh, yeah, I had to go to the hospital and get this moth pulled out. I was like, fuck me, man, I'm going to write that as a story, but I'm going to tell it from like, the moth's point of view. Don't know. See, that's the thing. Most people wouldn't say, I'm going to tell that from the moth's point of view. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the, the trick is, I'm, I'm interested in that because most people, everyone you know maybe has... Uh, mates or family or whatever, and we'll talk about this in the second half as well, who can tell stories and do tell stories, but what made you decide, I'm going to write these down and I'm going to embellish them, I'm going to make them something different? Uh, was, I don't know, man. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, it's why them, I started writing about three years ago, but I was just at a mad like, crossroads in my life, it's why they man, like, work wasn't going the way I wanted, I just moved in, moved, had to move back in my law and all that, and I was, I was skimping, and I was like, What's happening here? I'll become a writer. Aye, I'll become a writer. <laughs> no, I mean, pure glutton for punishment. I'm no, I'm no skimp enough. I'll become a writer. <laughs> um, that was that. Just kind of then, as soon as I sat down and started writing, just remembered all these mad stories that I'd heard from my pals and uh, all the daft things that's happened to me and my, me and my mates. And I thought, aye, like, I can just write all these down. Like, um, and then it was just a case of, like, how can I make them funnier? How can I make them weirder? And just embellish them, as you say, and just have a laugh with it, aye. And did you have a reader in mind, or did you not even think about that? Did you say, I just want to write these stories? To start with, I was just writing stuff. I just wanted to make my pals laugh and make, like, my ma was, like, she's the first person that re would read all my stories. I was like, right, can I make my ma laugh? Do you know what I mean? Like, it's a bit of a challenge. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> um, so that was, that was my goal, and I thought, if I can make my ma laugh, then that'll be all right. <laughs> so when uh, other friends and family and stuff started to read them, or even one times was out there, um, did they start seeing themselves in some of your stories? Ah, there's a few, aye. Um, ah, there's a few. There's a few less like, flattering ones. So, like, um, <laughs> you don't have to share if you don't want. I know. I can say it. She's not here, mate. So, um, <laughs> character, and I've wrote two stories about this woman. She's called Big Angie. So she's like, um, she's like kind of like an amalgamation of all the kind of like matriarchs in my family, like all the kind of really powerful women. And um, I just wanted to write a kind of strong character, like the women in my life, but. Um, She's predominantly based on my granny, who's like the strongest woman I know, and like fierce, and I mean, like, doesn't take any shite. But like, I made like a really, like, an exaggerated, almost kind of horrible version of my granny. But my granny read it, and straight away she was like, that's fucking about me, isn't it? <laughs> I, like, oh, I don't like to say, you know what I mean? I was going to say, because Big Angie's a memorable character, but it's not exactly a, a, a well, fair play. Um, I'm kind of interested in the idea of, of, of having a humour to a place, you know, like people say, oh, there's a Scottish sense of humour, and then you, you put that down, and there's a Glasgow sense of humour, and then, you know, there's an East End sense of humour, mm -hmm. and then there's a family sense of humour, ah, and friends yeah, yeah. and all that. What, 
did you worry that some of the humour wouldn't move outside of your family or outside of your area? Or what, did, did that even cross your mind? Or has it done? You know, has it kind of travelled, do you think? Uh, when I was writing it, no, really, at the time, because I wrote, when I wrote the first book, Kings, most of the stories were just written to just go online. I wasn't trying to publish them anywhere. I was just writing them to make my pals laugh and my family laugh and just putting it online. So um, I never really thought much about what kind of mass appeal or anything. But um, I do worry about it now, where I'm thinking, you know, where, where do I, I go next with my yeah. writing and stuff? Do you know what I mean? And um, So books don't really... Well, I kind of hard sell outside of Glasgow, really, mate. But, um, so, I, that, I mean, it is outside of Glasgow that you're, you're kind of... Aye, aye, aye. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, I, I like, I just like writing about Glasgow and I like writing about my kind of people and it's just... I like doing it. I'm going to yeah. keep doing it. Good. Aye, good fun. Um, do you, so, when you've got your material, are you sitting say, on a night like this um, and the folk will be chatting beforehand and afterhand and stuff? Are you always listening out for something, a kind of phrase or a word or a... Uh, aye, know? man, aye. Um, I'm quite kind of. And then the folk worried around you then? Did they I start kind of. I better watch what I say around here. I'm going to end up in one of his stories. Um, I've always been. I'm quite, quite kind of quiet normally. And um, I just, I like that in conversation. I like just kind of sitting back and like taking everything in and just watching what people are saying and kind of studying their like, blood. I sound like a fucking psychopath now. But um, <laughs> I like just watching people and like, listening to what they and how they talk and all that. And like I try and replicate that in my writing. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. I'll maybe I'll tune into people's like kind of speech patterns and the way they talk and. We like, we kind of ticks that we have to use and stuff, and I love doing that and um, just like analysing people. <laughs> as weird as that sounds, really. Nice. I, I think <laughs> in in your books and in uh, David's books, that kind of language is obviously hugely important, and the kind of authenticity of voice is hugely important. And and you think that is almost the basis of where the humour comes from? It's almost not what people are saying is equally what how they're saying it. Aye, that's it, definitely. I think we um, Glaswegian people, especially, it is it's how they tell the story, do you know what I mean, it's, you know how the guy at the corner of the bar in the pub, he's telling you a story that is just nonsense and it's not really gone anywhere but he's telling you in such a way that you're just pure drawn in and it's like, you know, like, like how do you replicate that on the page and that's something I like trying to do so I just, I, I love, find it fascinating how people from this area talk and the way they spin stories, I love it. Yeah. So the um, move from Hings to Here We Fucking Go um, which is the name of the second book, in case uh -huh. anyone thinks of <laughs> Tourette's or something um, <laughs> a, You say the first one was slapstick. Mm -hmm. you, you felt that, so this was your Aye. own kind of idea of what mm -hmm. it was like, because I wouldn't say it was necessarily like that. Aye, um, I don't know, I don't know. just felt a wee bit, when I look back at it now, I think I've, I've changed as a writer, I mean, I'm always mm -hmm. just trying to get better. After things came out, I went to college to like, learn about writing and how to do it, how to structure things a bit better on that, and then... I, I don't, maybe it's no slapstick, I don't know. I'm giving myself a hard time. <laughs> don't give yourself a hard time. Because uh, it was amazing. I mean, you know, the way it was received, it was an incredible um, so debut uh, collection. I'm interested that you'd written quite a lot and then binned it to Aye. start almost fresh again. Aye. What was it about that earlier stuff? Was it just that it was too similar? Or was it... Um, what was it you were trying to do, I guess, with the second collection? Aye. The second collection, what I thought was... like things kind of done well, why did it do well? Because people seem to like those kind of stories. So what I need to do is me thinking, like, I just need to write the same book again, do you know what I mean? So I was trying to do that, and it just wasn't working. Like I was, I was finishing stories, and I was like, these are shite, man. And um, it just it really it was really annoying me. And then I just thought, I need to... The problem is, it's like, can I change a tone in today, do you know what I mean? What, what do I want in this next book to be? If I was just writing this book as my first book, how would I want sure, it to be, yeah. do you know what I mean? So I kind of looked at it that way, and then I thought, aye, cool. This is how I wanted it to feel, and I wrote a couple of really dark, weird stories, 
I'd love to manage this, but I might be. And then I just kind of ran with that, and it all it all came together, thankfully. And uh, I mean, so the darker, I mean, there is, is there are many darker stories, but uh-huh. I still got that kind of sense of humour in them. Uh-huh. You were saying like you weren't sure where to go next. Uh-huh. Uh, are you going even further down the river? Are you even going darker next time around? I am writing a writing a novel just now, and um, it's been hard going because I'm that used to writing short stories. So yeah. I'm that used to just getting to like the kind of the crux of the story and cutting away no any extra stuff. I don't need it. But now I'm like right, how do I spin this idea into a 70, 80,000 word novel and I'm finding it really difficult because I'm just that used to like, ch- uh, like cutting away all the fluff. Yeah. I mean, whereas now I can kind of, I've got more room to experiment with characters and play about and jazz things up a bit and then I feel like I'm not really using it to its full potential. I just, in short story mindset, I'm like, I don't need that, cut it. Before I knew it, I've, I've heard a novel and it's down to like 10,000 words and I'm like, oh fuck, I'm done again. <laughs> <laughs> I've got another short story here. <laughs> uh, I'm going to open it up to the audience to see if there's any questions. I've got plenty more, but uh, I think it would only be fair to see if you guys do. So does anyone have any questions for uh, Chris? And if you say them out, I'll repeat them so everyone can hear them. Or not. <laughs> no, it's fine if you don't. Yes, sir. just kind of like fell into teaching. Um, my mate, one of my mates is an English teacher. He just said to me, he's like, do you want to come in and do like, spend an hour with my English class third years and just see if you can get them to write something? I was like, I don't know where I've never done anything like that, but I'll give it a go. And um, I just went in and like, it's quite a, um, quite a kind of wild class. They're quite, they're not really engaged with English that much, but um, I went in, I think Sam had kind of built me up as this like, fucking Welsh character, like, oh, he's half his seed, man, he's half his seed, you know that, <laughs> I'm like, oh, no, mate, he's built me up too much, but as soon as I went in, I just, I said to him, like, right, I'll, I'll read you a wee story, and I'd say to Sam, like, can I swear, he's like, aye, if you want, that's fine, mate, aye, so they're all kind of acting up and all that, but see, as soon as I swore, they were like, oh, this guy's mental, I know, <laughs> but all I said was, like, arse or something, and, like, <laughs> they were like, oh, my God, <laughs> it's been really good fun, um, just, it's just good fun, eh? You kind of learn about your own writing when you're trying to teach things. It's, it's great fun, eh? So, um, off the back of that, I go to day stuff um, in Adeville Prison, like two in oh Edinburgh. Yeah. I go to work with a group of guys in there. And um, recently, I've been working with a kind of rehab clinic, so um, like recovering addicts and doing stuff with them, really? and getting them to kind of write, write their stories. You know, get out their head, get out their head, go into paper, and it kind of helps them deal with it a lot. And um, it's, just, it's just great fun. It's just you get to meet so many interesting people, and you get to hear other people's stories, and it's just. The amount of talent flying about in people is unbelievable. Like I think every like it's a kind of cliched saying, but everybody's got a book in them, and yeah. I think the people I've spoke to in, in these classes, they definitely do. Do you know what I mean? So just I wish everybody would just give it a go. So do. So that idea that you there's an opportunity to write, and people realising that you know anyone can do it. Aye. Did you have someone that kind of inspired you in the same way that you could do this rather than it being for someone else? I think a lot of it was. Um, uh, Lemmy's been quite a big influence on me, so even his book came out, it was, noth- it was like nothing I'd ever read before. And I thought, oh well, because I'd kind of had it in the back of my mind for maybe a year or two to try and write a book, but I always thought, you know, oh, oh, I've not been to uni, I didn't do that well at English, um, I don't know if I could write something that's kind of a kind of serious novel or anything. And then I read Lemmy's book, Daffy Stories, I was like, fucking hell, it doesn't need to be 
I'll go into this in detail potentially so I can just be a daft wee story. Yeah. Just like, hold on a minute, man. If he can do it, then I can do it. So I just went for it and then I ended up just kind of what happened, obviously. And uh, so is that and is that what you're encouraging everyone that you're you're kind of interacting with now is to just go write your own stuff and then are you marking it or reading it or just saying it doesn't matter if because that kind of thing always interests me the idea aye. that you mark creative writing it always aro, makes it an odd thing to me. Aye, I think I'm doing this. Uh, I'm working with a school just now, and hang ideas. I've, I've made it so it's like separate to the curriculum. So this is like the ones will get their own notebook. And it's just getting them like, this is yours, I'm not going to get marked on this, just go for it. You can write whatever you want and don't need to worry about the teacher looking at it, do you know what I mean? And then I go around kind of one by one, I talk to them, I read their stories and I just kind of give them a wee bit of advice, just to encourage them to just keep writing and just keep going with it, do you know what I mean? And there's yeah. some, some quality swearing in these stories. There is, uh, it's good. See, because I, I told them, see, because I told them, I was like, like, you can write whatever you want, teacher's not going to read it, so just go mental. <laughs> like, what the fuck, I, every second word is like, fuck. The like, next generation man. of swearing, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Um, so tell us a little more about the, the novel, if you can, you don't have to say what it's about or anything, but just the idea, did you feel you had to do that, Nick? Was well, there a pressure or whether it came from you or from other people? That, you know, you've done two books of short stories, the novel's the next thing. Mm-hmm. I, um, it wasn't really so much a pressure, I just, I, I wanted to write a novel. When I was first thinking about getting into writing, I just assumed a novel would be what I'd write, but then it just kind of fell into short stories, but um, I, don't, I don't want to say too much about the idea, but... Um, uh, no, I just I wanted to write it for myself, just to see if I if I could really, do you know what I mean? And then I don't know. It's kind of felt to me as if you know you're. I feel like you're a real writer once you've written a novel. Do you know what I mean? Like that's what I thought, and I was like, oh, I like I like to have a novel under my belt, so but I can so see how it goes. <laughs> I mean, I think there is still that um, uh, thought, unfortunately, because I think you know, particularly in the last few years, been some amazing short story yeah. collections in Scotland uh, time, and yeah. elsewhere, but uh, you're mm-hmm. included. Um, so uh, you've been out now with the book and you've been doing readings with it and, and all that. How have how kind of audiences like these guys been reacting to it? Ah, it's been good. Um, I love doing the readings there. It's probably my kind of favourite part of being a writer. I love doing it. Um, it's another thing I just fell into. When I started writing, I didn't even know you could go on stage and read out stories. I didn't even know that was a thing. And um, that's brilliant. It's just such good fun getting up and just... Forcing people to listen to your part. <laughs> did you, when you were writing the second book, did you think, did you have that in mind because you'd done it for the first one? Oh, I wonder how these will be out loud. I, so I, mean, um, I like writing the kind of longer stories now, but then I was thinking, like, what kind of stories do I like reading out for people? And it's the kind of short lines that end on punchlines. And um, so I've written a couple of them and they were like written to be read out. Do you know what I mean? So um, when I've got a wee kind of like two or three page story that ends in a punchline, I kind of Rather than write it down, I will just kind of like, like try and work it out like verbally. Do you know what I mean? Like just kind of like sit and kind of think to myself, how would I tell this story if I was just telling it? Do you know what I mean? Um, I like doing that. I like writing with like performance in mind for the, and then I like performing especially stuff for the first time. Mm-hmm. Like maybe like a joke doesn't quite land and nobody laughs, but then there's a bit that you never thought was funny, but you hear people laughing at, which is always quite nice. I like that. So I do, and then um, get away and tweaking it and trying to just do it funny and create funny. Uh, any more questions from the audience? Okay. Uh, did you have different influences for the second book? I mean, did you go away, and, uh, did you have time to go away and read different things and then say, yeah, you, s- you, you mentioned uh, Lemmy and a lot of mm-hmm. his stuff's got darker and darker as he's been on and on. Um, was that a result of, of reading different things and different writers? I think so. I uh, read uh, my own device, reading David's first book for the first time, that was a kind of 
a shock to my system when I read that. I was like, fucking hell, I've not read anything like this, man. And then just that kind of dark, really dreamy, like, kind of hallucinatory vibe. I loved that. And um, then I read um, Helen McClory's books. Um, yeah. Lucky enough to be published by the same publishers for me. I loved that. Really dark, again, just weird stuff. And then this American writer, Amelia Gray, I loved her stuff. Um, I was just, uh, these are the people I want to kind of emulate and try and get into that wee kind of, I don't know, that, that kind of mood with my writing. I liked it. Uh, just getting a bit darker and a bit weirder. And uh, and is that where you're, you're looking to go with another one, darker and weirder and a bit? I don't know. I don't know. I've got kind of two ideas that I'm working on for the novel. Okay. So I've okay, got I won't push any, but I can sell that. Oh. I'm not comfortable with <laughs> Uh, but, but hopefully you're not done with short stories at all. And I'm sure oh, oh, definitely. I'll always, always, always write short stories. My favourite thing to write. So, yeah. And uh, have you ever thought of doing like a performance, like an Edinburgh Fringe or anything like that? I tried a wee bit. I tried a wee bit of that. I done a kind of like a stand-up routine almost, kind of based on like based around writing books and that. And I done it last year at the Glasgow Comedy Festival, and um, I enjoyed it, but it wasn't really. How, how long was it? How, what, how long was the set? About forty-five minutes. Oh so right, it was okay. right. And, um, I just wasn't for me. I liked having if I was just doing it I was, as like stand up almost, yeah. but like when I'm doing the readings with the book, you know, I've got the book in front of me and I don't get to look at Andy. You know <laughs> what I mean? It's a lot easier. But um I don't know, I, I quite liked it. Um thanks to Tom Brogan who's sitting there, um he kinda got into writing plays and stuff as well. Oh, so right. I quite liked doing that. Um so I've got a wee play coming at Glasgow Comedy Festival, Alongside Tom, so come okay. and see us. <laughs> uh, and where's that gonna be on? Uh, CCA, what's the date again? And uh, last, I think last time I spoke to you, you were doing some film stuff as well. Mm-hmm. Is that an idea that you could talk about it in film at all today? Not meant to, but who's going to stop me? <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, You're among friends. <laughs> <laughs> Aye, so um, lucky enough, I've been pally with this guy, Joe Hewlett. So he's the creator of Scott Squad. And um, oh. he read the first book and he really liked it. And um, so he got me in for a wee meeting one day. And um, I had been to the BBC before and like pitched a kind of an adaptation of things to the BBC and they just knocked me back flat out so then I met up with Joe and he was like right well why don't I told him my idea you know I'd like to kind of make a kind of Twilight Zone style show based on my book and he's like right 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 well I'll come with you that's next time I'll get you a pitch and I'll come with you maybe we'll leave it then so we went in pitched it again he said no again I was like fucking hell man but um, I just had my heart set on it and I was explaining this to Joe and he's like alright well I can get you one more pitch and then you're probably not going to just call it a day mate so we went in again, and he kind of helped me with the pitch, and we'd done it all again, and explained everything out, and we were like, it's just, no, we're just not really having it, and I was heartbroken, and then Joe just went like that, right, plan B, and I was like, what's plan B, like, I don't know, but in the meeting with these BBC kind of execs, I'm like, what's happening here, mate? You don't do that, I <laughs> <laughs> He was like, um, why don't you like, commission, like, three, pick your three favourite stories in the book, we'll go away and make them, and if you like them, then we'll just make a full series kind of thing. And we said, right, we'll do that. So we went away, we made turned three stories into like three short films, and they're going to be on the BBC iPlayer soon. So oh, brilliant. See how it goes. So it was good. I like done all the kind of adaptation, like turning it from a story into a, into a script. And I was like, on set, getting them all filmed, and that it was, it was just, it was great fun. It's the, the best final, experience. The final film? I looking through like the edits and that, and I've not seen the actual final, final, final cut, but I'm looking, I'm really, really chuffed with them. Really happy with them. Really happy with them. So. And uh, the kind of process of that was something you enjoyed? It was amazing, I it was just it was so good, like seeing it all from the start to finish, from just me turning the stories into scripts to like the casting, to being out filming it and scouting for locations and 
costume design that it's just I loved it all it's, it's so brilliant I've got the bug like I want to just do that for everyone and so they're just going to make stuff for <laughs> so lots of stuff happening lots of stuff um, oh, it's going. good thanks 100 million it's good fun um, well unless anyone's got any last minute questions uh, we're going to take a break there has anyone got anything they would like to ask Chris be able to ask him later on at the bar I mean it's no bother <laughs> um, well since that's the case um, would you please put your hands together for Chris McQueer please <laughs> And we're now going to have a 15 minute break and then after that David Keenan will be on stage and talking about his book. So see you then. Cheers. second part of the Glasgow launch of David Keenan's uh, For the Good Times and this time to my left is Mr David Keenan. Thank you. So we're going to start off, um, David's going to do a reading from For the Good Times and then we'll see what happens after that. So I'm going to drop us right in. The, the, the book is set in the late 70s and early 80s in uh, Belfast uh, during the Troubles. And it begins and ends with the second hunger strike in the H-Block where uh, Bobby Sands and other prisoners died. We'll jump in here and we'll take it from there. The second hunger strike begins in March. I speak to somebody in the cell across from me that I'd received a com, a small roll of paper with tiny letters on it that he had secreted inside the eye of his penis and that he had recovered using the graphite shaft of a pencil, saying that Bobby Sands was to lead it and that he fully expected to die. You're talking to a dead man, Sands says, as his fellow prisoners greeted him at mass that Sunday. We followed the story of the strike with these serial comms, with gossip shouted from cell to cell, with the echoes and the pipes of the place names and the tiny microscopic scripts secreted inside our own bodies. Bobby is coming and going, they says to us. Bobby is leading the lagging. The no-wash protest comes to an end. The prisoners shave their heads and their beards. They use soap carbolic soap that smelt like home, but it stung their eyes, matted in their hair. There are other stories too. The prisoners of the dead zone would rewrite books on sheets of toilet paper or adapt books from memory and then read them out the door to the other cells at night. Interminable books, dreadful books filled with terrible words, words like firepower in Angola and revolutionary suicide. So as everything became confused and the comms talked to the books and the books to the toilet paper and the toilet paper to the pipes and the pipes to the songs the boys would sing, songs by Bobby Sands and Irish folk songs and victory to the IRA and victory to the blanket men and pop music and punk rock too until it felt like an echoes of an echoes of an echoes. That's when I began to learn the lingo that I intend to speak for the rest of my life. 
the Irish lingo that I have come to associate with the camaraderie of the maze and with the breaking of the echoes and the story, best of all, of a hunger striker who had been part of the first protest and who says that he'd forgotten what he looked like entirely, that he had literally no memory of his own face until one day, as the sun came blaring through the window of his prison cell, a warder was sweeping all the pish that had run out of his cell, all of the pish that had flooded beneath the door and out into the corridor. This warder had swept it back in, and it came in like a tide, washing up around the edge of his mattress, and he'd leaned over and caught his own reflection in this glistening wave lit up by the sun and these waters of pure gold, and his own face had emerged as that of a stranger's. And he saw himself, as if for the first time, as if he had woken up and been given a new identity entirely. That's me, he says to himself. And he reaches out and he makes his eyes dilate sets two whirlpools in his eyes with the tips of his fingers and says that he felt himself hypnotized and that he realized that he'd come back to himself from somewhere that had no name, but that it was there on the piss-soaked floor of this shit-smeared cell where he had come face to face with his real self for the first time and it had given him an inner strength that he never knew before. He had come to himself and given himself permission to be a hero. The kinged ship of the self, he had said. That's what the comrade read. Smuggled in the eye of a penis. Boys, I have been given the kinged ship of myself. And wrote like that too. So that it was most resembled a drunken boat. A royal ship tossed and raised up over a sea of piss drops, raining down. This river's made me go where I wanted, this final crossing to a dirty mattress and a shallow pool, from sea to final sea, is the same place. Only Belfast is the centre of the world. Only Ireland is a garden in space. And as they died, I tracked them. I imagined their real bodies, their final bodies. These first and last men, spoken out of Adam's apple, snaking up into the air on all the leaving. Above the maze is a trapdoor, hidden above these letters, these English letters, written into the earth, into the page, into the soft, suffering flesh of this page. Above them is a gap, and I picture that same soft, warm rain, that final torrent of sorrowful drops raining down is all that's left on Ireland. Tears of pity, tears of heartbreak and shame for the friends and families left there down below. Tears of sorrow for God's own boys and their lovers and a shower of pish for the rest of the bastards. Thank you. Thanks, David. So, last time we spoke, um, there was a sentence which struck me. You said, when you finished the book, you said to yourself, bloody hell, I've written a book about the Troubles. How, uh, 
I mean, how do you feel now looking back on it uh, after? I mean, the book was just out then; it's now been out and it's had some reception. How do you feel? You feel the same way? I, I feel uh, naive, but I think my naivety maybe allowed me to write the book in kind of compare of freedom and without worrying about this sort of censorious takes and um, um, the, the intimidation that you that you actually still face writing about the troubles. Um, so yeah, I think I walked in here naively, but I deliberately look when I when I write a novel when I, when I'm writing something that's fictional. I avoid reading anything else about the yeah. same topic because yeah. I think one research can always get in the way of invention, mm -hmm. and secondly, I do not want to write the same book that other people have written about the troubles. So I wouldn't read any books about the troubles. In my time, I've read, read a lot of non-fiction about it, and obviously my family had a connection with it. That's what I went on, yeah. because I wanted to keep it some kind, somehow kind of pure and uncynical, and without second-guessing about how the troubles may be written about. And of course, it's not wholly about the troubles, it's about family, it's about masculinity, about you know, all sorts of different things. Um, but you also said, I think, that it was time that this was taken on in fiction. That's that actually in it, through fiction, through literature, was a way that you can understand these times the best. Can you explain a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I've always wondered about that. I mean, like, you know, I'm interested in boxing, and I, I like to box. And one of the things I love about a boxing fight is at the end, after these two people have pummeled the absolute living shit out of each other, that they kind of cross the ring and shake hands. Uh -huh. And they kind of get to the point where, like, you know, brave warriors, we played the game. And I almost began to wonder, are we far enough away from the troubles when we're able to say, yeah, it was terrible, it was absolutely traumatic, but we played the game, these were rules, and, we, and somehow, to get to the point where we can try and redeem that, yeah. to redeem that somehow. So this became a big obsession by me. I didn't, you know, I wanted to be able to talk about how do you redeem your own situation, no matter how difficult it is, no matter the terror you're going through, no matter if you live in a war zone, you still have to be able to say yes. There's this whole idea that only if these circumstances take place, then can you say yes to your own life. But let's face it, no one's life really gets to these points where you're able to very easily say yes to it. And I was attracted to the situation in Belfast because that's a very hard place to say yes. Yeah. It's to come to terms of what you're doing. So I became excited by the idea that how can you affirm your own existence even in the midst of a sectarian war zone? So one of the big things that I began to talk about was like, or think about when I was writing the book. And when I wrote about it, it was a very sort of a, um, even the way people would react to it, they were, okay, you're talking about violence. And they would kind of say, so obviously, you know, you get down in the book and you realise that violence is wrong or violence is bad or misreading it and seeing so characters get to the end of the book and you realise that violence is bad. And I'm like, no, no. And I wanted to write a book that was not, did not offer any pat solutions did not um, surrender to saying, well, wait, suffering is bad, evil is bad, these things are terrible, how can we transform them? It wanted to say these are brute facts of our existence in some kind of way. So how do we still, with the fact of violence, with the fact of suffering, how do we still say yes? How do we still affirm uh, our own experience? And it began to tell, I began to think, storytelling. 
the way we, and that's what redemption means. I think there's an idea of redemption. And redemption, I always think of redemption. You know when you bought like a bottle of like, uh, uh, Limeade and a glass bottle and you took it back and you got like 3p back when you took it back to the shop? That's redemption. So think about that. What that really means is, and my idea of redemption is, is you take all these experiences that seem rough and difficult and challenging and the loss and the suffering you had, and you redeem it. And how do you redeem it? You get a story back. You take your bottle away, made in, and it gives you back a story. It's worth more than 20p or whatever. You know what I mean? And you get the story back. So I began to think, I want to write a story about what it would be like to grow up and live during the troubles and still say yes, and still say yes, even as you were on the side of murder, even as you were on the side of difficulty, even as your friends and family were being killed. The biggest question in anyone's life is how do you say yes? And everyone's entitled to a yes. So when you say yes, you mean my existence is valid, my experience is valid, and therefore um, it's, it's a valid subject for literature and it's a valid subject for discussion. You're playing your role. Do you know what? I'll tell you one thing that I've come to recently which is kind of blown my mind. I don't believe in evil. I don't think evil is possible. And I think, I, I now think that there's a, what we mean by evil is it means something that would fuck up life. Something that would make life not happen. And then I thought, do you know what would be evil? Time travel. Time travel is the introduction of evil into the world. Because then you go back and like, change shit. And if we could all change shit according to our own whims, life would be hell. Life would be hell. Evil would enter the world. And so then you say, well, thank God. I don't mean this by any, but you can actually, but if I do, you can still say it. Thank God that you're not the person choosing your own life. Because see, if you chose your own life, it would be the worst novel of all time. It would be the most boring movie you wouldn't even fucking sit through it yourself. You'd be like, this is his movie, this is his life story. He's born, he gets laid, he's a beautiful wife, he's dead successful, he's rich, he dies. He's like, mate, I'm, honestly, mate, I'm, I'm walking out, like, 20 minutes in. This isn't interesting to me. Do you know what I mean? So, I like the idea that we give ourselves up to the stories and we say yes to it. And they're not invented by us, because if they were invented by us, they'd be dead boring. And despite this idea I mentioned about the Chris, that it's the people and the, the way they speak and the, how the stories that they tell, the kind of cultural history, for want of a better term, that make the place. I mean, you know, yours, your book's very much set in, set in Belfast with the rhythms of speech and the, 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 you know, the different ways of using language that people do without thinking that this is correct or this is not correct. It's just the way people are, the way people speak. Um, I mean, say a bit about the, the kind of idea behind setting it in Belfast. I know it was a personal decision for you as well, but um, that place and that town. Well, I mean, the Langley's thing is, is, a, is a big deal for me. I mean, one of my big things is that I, I came to a revelation was I began to, re I mean, I loved Potter. I grew up with Potter. You know, I, I love to hear, like, my dad's brothers, like, the way they could talk. The way they, and it was always, the big challenge is, can you tell a story? Can you tell a story? Can you deliver a punchline? Are your rhythms right? And I began to realise the working class have such faith in language. They're like Kabbalists. They're like religious Kabbalists. They believe if you can just tell the story perfectly, if you can turn the words enough, then I'm not saying we're going to have some spiritual revolution, but you might be able to salvage the moment in a way. And then I began thinking, working class power is like modernist literature, but better, actually. You know, it was an attempt to get to that 
instant kind of moment that people like Joyce Beckett. Listen to Beckett. I mean, it's par. It is totally deadpan par. You know, and Chris, Chris McHugh, who's, who's reading there alone, I think Chris is very, has got that Beckett quality of this deadpan, sort of like weirdly asking strange spiritual questions of yourself through par. You know, so a big thing about mine is I wanted to enshrine the way these illiterate people, because most of them couldn't read or write, but they still had a faith in language. My dad would always say to me, oh, you should read books, you need to get an education, you know, that'll do you well. And you feel like saying, well, how the fuck do you know? <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's the last book you read. But it was amazing because it was, the, it was faith. And when faith triumphs belief, well, you're a fucking Kabbalist. So like, I think my dad was the first Kabbalist I ever met and taught me the power of words and also the potential of words to transform. Because I'm into that whole William Burroughs idea where words itself can make something come alive. And that's a Kabbalistic idea, you know, where the golem, where they write its name on its forehead and using language alone, they animate clay. And as anyone who's ever written um, will admit it's true. That's why I'm always blown away by like these creative writing classes, because like, how the fuck can you teach something that you receive as a revelation? Yeah. Jump back to the, the first point, then you also said that you were surprised by what you were writing. I don't just mean the book as a whole, but as you wrote it, you were surprised at the path you went down, what your characters did, the way they acted, the way they spoke, all sorts of things. I mean, is that how you find? This is now the, your second novel. Is that and you're, I know you're working on a third and more. Is that how you find it every time? Is it different? I mean, it, it's 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 weird to talk about because I feel as if you get into metaphysics. And what what has surprised me about um, becoming a writer and becoming a writer with no but no uh, literary friends or no one who wrote novels or no connection to um, the literary scene whatsoever. Um, and so no one to talk to about what your experience is of writing a book. Um, but my experience of it has been like demonic possession. Mm. And you know, these people talk about these things as if, oh, you do have your characters and you have your timeline and you fill these. I was like, what the fuck? That is not my experience. My experience is that this demon like fucking set fires to your brain and then you have 20 voices that you're competing with at least for six months and then there's no way to exercise them so you never lose them and you feel mad for the rest of your life for the sake of one fucking book. Everyone says, oh, that was a funny book, mate. I quite like that sketch. You're like, yeah, lucky for you, mate. I'm now terminally insane with 20 <laughs> demons but I'm glad you thought that joke was good. Do you know what I mean? 1299? It's a price of three coffees, you bastards. Good job we get NHS. <laughs> but it's like that. Why does no one say that? Why did no writer? Actually, the only writer I've got that I've heard that came close to that was um, I did an event with Irvin Welsh. Irvin Welsh did say, somebody said to him, mate, 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 what's the, what's the thing that you need the most? Is your writer, what's the quality you need the most to writer, mate? And he was like, you need to have an insane capacity to be lonely. And it's, and it, it, I was like, that's the closest I've ever heard to anyone saying what well, you need to be as a writer. You know, I do these things. Like, I've been, mean, what, what is it, two years since I, a year since I last did these things. But in between that, you're in this weird zone where all these voices are in your head and you're possessed and you're channeling them. And it does feel like that. And I'm, yeah, I'm blown away that no, that people don't talk about it anymore. You said also last time that uh, you wanted to get to the stage where you wrote yourself out of art. And 
that sounds like maybe to get rid of the voices, is that, would that be fair? Or do you want to lose these voices? I mean, it's hard to separate who you are and, and what your mission is. And I don't know, I say a mission, I do sound like I'm a Martian that came down here to like impregnate some like earth females and like head <laughs> off. Do you know what I mean? Your mission. But um, I do feel, I, I, I've always felt like my first book was about Airdrie. Um, and, it was a, and it was a lovely area of dream, uh, absolutely, my second book's about Belfast, and they were all about, um, I guess the th I realised that the thing I have in common is where um, it seems like reality itself is up for grabs a little bit, that there's maybe a vortex, a strange area where we can rewrite the possibilities of what we can do, um, and um, again I'm going back to that idea of redemption because when I was growing up in Airdrie, yeah, most people's idea of Airdrie is is an absolute shithole. I know it won like pluck on a plinth one year, and I, I no wonder. Um, but I, beneath the facade, which I would argue kind of like keeps like initiate, it keeps uninitiated out. Beneath the facade, there's so many interesting, eccentric people, and amazing experiences, and beautiful parks, and strange streets, and weird psychogeographic vistas, as they would call it, in Airdrie. You know, and it's all, my whole point is it's always there in front of you. But I think, does it take art or um, storytelling to redeem that? And what I mean by that is, does it take art or storytelling to give you the permission to love exactly where you are? And then that's what I mean by curing yourself of art. Imagine reading a book that made you think, fucking hell, I'm so in love with where I am right now. I love every aspect of it. I'm going to love it. Who needs books anymore? And that's why I, I think that is that why Rimbo is like is is so um held up as as one of the greatest poets. And I mean I love Rimbo, and I love Rimbo even more than I love him for his poetry, which I do love. I love him for the fact that he cured himself of poetry as a fucking kid, and then walked out into life. Though isn't that why we listen to records? Isn't that why we read poems? Isn't that why we read books? Isn't that why we write books? So we can be done with them? So we can look at life the way we look at paintings and fucking art galleries? I believe that. Art should cure you of art. Books cure you of book. What the best book will make you never want to read a book again in your fucking life. Uh, going back to Mrs. Memorial Devices, you say the set in Airdrie. I remember you said that that was almost inspired by a book on Airdrie that you, that you read in the library. Was, is that... I mm. remember that right. Well, I mean, this is an interesting thing because I guess this is a sense of permission. And as a kid, I guess I had that cliched thing in my mind where I was like, oh, I love my fucking shit. Oh, I'm Airdrie. So I'm listening to the Ramones and they're playing at fucking CBGBs or like, you know, um, rough trade shops and off Portobello Road where there's loads of Rastas and we're running head shops. Meanwhile, I'm like going to W.A. Smith's and buying like 2000 AD. You know what I mean? But at the same time, I began to realise that, um, um, well, I always remember sitting outside um, W.H. Smith's with my gran and, and seeing, like, guys who, who, like, dressed up in incredible outfits and looking outrageous and looking weird and, and getting abuse as well. Yeah, and, and I guess that was my first e e experience of martyrdom and of saints, yeah. actually. And I began to think of these guys as, as saintly figures, as guys who, who sacrificed their unknown lives in order to be ex to express yourselves, and, and in a way, like this, Airdrie City Centre became like a catwalk for me. <laughs> you know, I would see these guys with their fucking outfits, looking at smoking like flagrantly smoking marijuana in my grand's face, and I'm like, I love my grand, but 
I'm into this. And it kind of sounds, and it kind of sounds like the future. I gotta be honest with you. You know what I mean? And then I, f- I fell in with some chicks of two girls that were doing a like underground fanzine at the time in Airdrie, and then their mum's house running a fanzine. And then I was like, fucking hell, the magic is just, you know, that situationist thing where they're like underneath the paving stones, the beach. You know, fucking underneath Airdrie, utopia. You know what I mean? Uh, well, that's a good thing to talk about the music in, in, in both books, but music obviously plays a key part. And in For the Good Times, it kind of, it almost defines roles, you know, you've got, um, obviously, you've been hearing it all night, I think, some Perry Como. Um, yeah, let's start with that. Let's talk a little about Perry Como and his role in this uh, in this book. Well, I mean, it sounds ridiculous because people say Perry Como's easy listening, but I, I mean, I, I find it quite difficult to talk about it. I, I find Perry Como incredibly heavy listening. And I think, well, one of the reasons is also my personal connection with it. And um, a few, I, I was thinking recently that outside of my friends and family, I think Perry Como was the voice that I know best. And I've lived with Perry Como's voice my entire life. And that's kind of a revelation. Even more than Lou Reed. Lou, I mean, I consider Lou Reed like, you know, like my spiritual brother and my, uh, my, uh, my, the transformative rock star of my life. But I realise even more so that Como was, Como was deeper mm-hmm. somehow. And then I began, you know, he sings like, and so there's a the start of the book, I quote, it's impossible, and he says, can the ocean keep from rushing to the shore? It's just impossible. And I was like, wow, how did I used to think this was easy? Easy, this is elemental. Mm-hmm. This is heavy shit, you know? And then I was listening for the good things, and that. so I really came back to Perry um, and um, understood this very sort of... Um, it's almost like a sort of domestic existentialism or something that Perry brings. There's no situation which does not invoke the stars or the movement of comets or the moon in the sky or the tide rushing in. And I was like, wow, what context? Meanwhile, the Arctic monkeys are singing about or some fucking dance floor, or you know what I mean? <laughs> and you're like, you know, who's easy? Yeah, absolutely. You know? So I was very interested in Como. And also I was interested in... Um, I mean, I need, I, when I talk about For the Good Times, I, ne- I need to talk about my dad. Um, my d- actually, on the front cover of the book, the guy with the Mickey Mouse ears is actually, it's a photograph of my father, which I think is from the Ardoin in um, the 60s. And uh, my dad was, um, uh, my lo- one of them, my love for language, I think, came from my dad, who couldn't really, couldn't fully read a, could struggle to read a book, but had an amazing faith in, in, in language again and was a lover of... Um, uh, a lover of Perry Como, and I always um, enjoyed the dissonance between my dad and his vision of Perry Como because my dad looked up to Perry Como, and my dad was a tough guy. He would like knock you through a plate glass window if he felt like it, but at the same time, he would always insist on how Como was like, you know, a Como never swore because it was almost like an idolization. Yeah, it was, but it was a dissonant matter. It was a Como never swore, Como never drank. Como was always faithful to his wife. And you'd hear these guys, just every second word was a curse word. Holding up Como was some kind of, like, part of them. And I always remember uh, me and my mum uh, really got into Lou Reed. We were uh, so into Lou Reed. And we, uh, I mean, actually, every time Lou Reed played in Scotland from the 80s onwards, me and my mum went to see him. And we had some amazing guys, including a time when Lou Reed went like that, he was in the front row for, like, no reason whatsoever. <laughs> we had a playhouse front row. He was like, ah, fuck you. We were like, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? 
But uh, so we went. But I remember one night we're sitting back in a, a house in Airdrie and we're playing like um, I think it's Busload of Faith. I think it's on New York. I think it was live New York. It was a video. Live New York, we're jamming like live New York, loving that. I still fucking love that album, man. And it comes on a busload of face, and my dad's watching it, and Ludie's singing. And at one point, he says, uh, "Americans don't care much for nothing. They'll shit in a river, dump battery acid in a stream." And my dad just got on that, and he's like, "I'm not fucking listening to that filth," because he said he's shit in a stream, and he, <laughs> and he walked out the room. I've got to be honest, my dad initiated me into curse words. Do you know what I mean? But I was amazed in that he thought a performer should not be using those words. We should be aspiring somewhere else. And so a big part of that dissonance between Como and the reading, between the, 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 the person that he was, inspired the book. And always, you know what I mean? But it goes into this idea of a complex version of masculinity, if you like. You know, you get one thing which I've got these rules. And they might not make any sense when you put them together, but they're still my rules. And that's something that he kind of seemed to have. Plus also, there was this sense that uh, and we touch a little bit on tribes, I suppose, in, the, in them. And their tribe was not just that they listened to Perry Como, but they kind of wanted to be, you know, there was, they dressed like him, they spoke like him, they maybe didn't, you know, maybe swore unlike him, but you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, and you know what's been interesting for me is, like I said, I didn't, I tried not to do. I tried not to read a lot of fiction about it, or even do too much research before I was doing it, because I wanted to have my own vision based on oral histories that I'd heard myself. But the more I began to read, since then I began to read a lot of accounts, especially um, what's been interesting to me is read accounts from uh, loyalist communities, mm-hmm. and to see that they feel exactly the same thing. One of the strangest things is that. One of the, I th- I'd say one of the things that sometimes that me me wrestle with in the book is the abs the, is the um the sort of uh, glee the gleefulness of some of the violence, but I began to realise that when I read reports of from sixty nine the early seventies, kids were excited, and it sounds like a crazy thing to say, but I've seen it on Republican side and I've seen it on the loyalist side. It was exciting. There was a new energy on the streets. There were gangs on the streets of Balaclavas. Mm-hmm. There was the fucking British Army on the streets with machine guns. There was tanks. There was like fucking armoured patrol cars on your fucking streets. Not just that. you got to remember, a lot of these people in these communities had tellies for the first time. And who was on the telly? Them. They were on the fucking telly. Yeah, and, and, and you read about all these gangs, Republican gangs and loyalist street gangs, they were like mods. They were fucking sharp. They've got crombies on, they've got a way of dressing, they've got their own codes. You know, the UVF have all their different badges according to, like, what, where you are in rank and things like that. And what fascinated me, and one of the things the book's about, is, like, do you know what? Male adolescent violence is a perpetual problem. And how do we solve it? There's been so many ways of solving it. Rock and roll was a way of solving it. You know, Elvis Presley channeling a surgeon to wrong role. And what I was, um, when you think about what a lot of these paramilitary loyalist organisations came out, they came out of the BBs, they came out of the Cub Scouts, which was another way of channeling adolescent male violence in a way. And then I've got, I'm I'm very fast, I'm going to, I'm making a huge leap here, but it it ties in with a lot of my obsessions. I'm very interested in Paleolithic cave art. And one of the most amazing things that you discover about that is the, the huge bulk of Paleolithic cave art was made by fucking adolescents. Adolescents. It's the equivalent of a cock 
on a toilet stall. And you've got a coffee table book about it. And a lot of them is, are beautiful. But a lot of them, so, you'll see some of them. Some of them are amazing. It's like a guy firing an arrow into a mammoth while his big long cock goes into a woman at the same time. This is a guy with a Ferrari jamming a guitar. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It kind of never ends. And another interesting thing to me was when I began, when you look into like the rediscovery of Paleolithic sites, and this is fucking mind blowing. Paleolithic sites, in so many occasions, were rediscovered by adolescent males. Um, what's the Lascaux? Uh, Lascaux caves. I mean probably regarded as some of the greatest art of Paleolithic times, and it's totally true, there's some absolutely beautiful stuff there. Do you know how they were discovered? A bunch of fucking teenage kids with a dog were out running mad, the dog ran down a hole, they ran down the hole after it and found the last cow cave paintings. Who else but an adolescent climbs into a fucking hole in the ground with a torch and checks it out? You know what I mean? So there's two sides to this. You've got this very difficult massacre and mammoths and a big long cock and a jack with a Ferrari, but you've also got this torch into the darkness. You've got this balance. So I wanted to, one of the things I wanted to talk about in this book was what do we, adolescent masculinity, it's out of control, but what do we do with it? I mean, you, and you do talk about the kind of sensational aspect of violence in general, whether it's first thing on the nine o'clock news or... Um, I mean, I don't think your book does sensationalise it at all. But I think it's kind of, it's looking into the lives of these people and these are a, a, it's an honest depiction of how they were uh, acting and, and who they were with. But I, I'm again interested in this idea of tribes and gangs because these guys would have been gangs and friends anyway. But then you've got this added level of excitement, I suppose, which comes along with being involved with uh, a Republican organisation. Well, I always wonder, I always think that every thinking person deep down believes that um, if there was any situation going on, they would be on the right side. They would do the right thing. They would be the nice guys. But you know what? I fucking doubt it. And my experience and history plays out that that's not really true. So I wanted to show people that were unideological. They were attached to their tribe. They were attached to their community. And that's how they acted. And I still believe that 85% of people still act that way. And I think you can talk left, right. You can talk loyalist, Republican. I think most of the people are unthinkingly adhering to their tribe. And you know what? I'm not even damn on that. Why the fuck not? One th another thing I've come to realise about myself is that I believe in retributive violence. I believe in retributive justice. And I believe that if anything happened to my family or anyone close to me, it's the police's duty to try and stop me, but they'll need to try and fucking stop me because I need to be stopped. And I still believe in that, you know? And I know it's a difficult and complicated thing. No, I don't true. think I should be allowed to do that, but I'm going to fucking try. And the, the questions of masculinity are difficult and complicated in the book. So could you say a little bit more about what you want to explore by looking at that? Well, okay, one of the big lessons I learned about and I learned so much from my dad. And, you know, once your, your father dies as well, you come to terms of the legacy that's been handed on. And I, definitely I've been handed on a, a, a heavy legacy from my father in an incredibly profound way. And, of course, and I think every every person comes to this with their parents and maybe there's ways that they didn't even fully appreciate when they were alive. But um, uh, my father was an incredible combination of... Um, and this book is very much about fathers and sons. Because on the one hand, fathers and sons perpetuate cycles. 
but there are sometimes there are fathers who allow you to break out and go somewhere else. And I really believe that my father gave that to me while not denying his own background. I mean, I, I, I joked earlier on about uh, my father would knock you through a plate glass window. I, I did see my dad knock a guy through a, a plate glass window. Uh, and I, I can never remember, I'll find, I'll find out afterwards when, but I can't remember if it was Rossi or was Isle of Man. And uh, actually my mum didn't even know because I only brought up this story at, um, at my dad's funeral because um, my dad said to me afterwards, don't tell your mum. She was washing her hair with my sister at the time, and me and my brother went down to the Penny Falls. And um, you know the Penny Falls, you drop a penny in, and eventually it keels over, and you get like, if you're lucky, like forty pence in your dreams or something. But it seems dead exciting, so you put the pennies in. So my mom and my si- and my sister were like, they're gonna wash their hair and like get their makeup on. So me and my brother and my dad were like, we'll go down and like play the puggies and that. So we went down and we did the Penny Falls, and uh, there was an old woman next to us playing the Penny Falls. And it's just about a tap, and there's a guy next to her. And then the guy tries to edge in at her penny falls like this. He's gonna win fucking, I said 40 pence if he's lucky, but he's determined. So he goes like that. And all my dad does is like put a hand in the game of the way, and he accidentally like skiffs my dad's head. And, and you know, I saw that, I was like, oh, that's, yeah, you can't, you can't touch my dad's head. <laughs> fist. So my dad turns around, like scalps him one, gets through the window. Out on the pavement, lying in like blood and glass and shit like this. We're cr- I'm half crying, but, and this is the complicated thing because I'm half terrified. I'm oh my god, fucking, but I'm half like, fucking hell, did you just see that? Guy went through a window, he's lying in the blood, dad's out there like this. And a guy gets from my dad and he's like, get the fuck off, you'll kill him. And my dad's like, I'll fucking kill you. Bangs this guy. Then grab, grabs me and my brother, we're running up the high street. I don't know if it's Isle Man or Rossi, but we're running up the fucking. He's like, jump in. We like dive in uh, like a, a, a doorway as the police go past and shower us. And then we walk back to the wee chalet where we're staying. Mum's like ready to go out in hell and then like was half. We're like, oh no, it's killed, it's in the puggies. And then we go for a night and it's fine and nothing was ever spoken about again on my dad's funeral. But I couldn't get out of my mind. I couldn't get out of my mind. And it felt like, um, Initiation. Yeah. I don't I'm not saying it's good. Oh, it's great to see somebody getting panned through a window, mate. You need it and you'll feel better afterwards. I don't mean that, but it initiated me into other further realities that my father was capable of. But at the same time, and this is my point, my, my father was capable of such affection and such um, love that he gave me a great. He, he, his idea of masculinity seemed beautiful to me. He, he was strong. I never felt scared when I was around him, but he would. He would be able to kiss me and he would say you're you're my golden boy and he would kiss me and he would touch my head i was like what a fucking combination and and so i guess another thing that i was writing about this book is the fathers and sons and the fathers who inflict the endless cycles of violence on their own children and the fathers who give themselves who give their sons permission to be who they could be because i think something you said last time is your 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 father said don't make people fear you know, like don't scare them, but also keep them safe and keep yourself safe as well. But that idea that don't don't create fear for want of a better word. Well, I always remember him. I don't know. If, I think my dad had a stroke on on a, on the golf course, Eastern Morfa Golf Course in Plains. By the way, for, that's for all the Memorial Device fans out there. I'm saying, man, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, up at Eastern Morfa's go- golf course, he had a stroke. And luckily, it didn't go in his brain. It went in his legs, but he collapsed on the ground while he was playing golf with my brother. And as my brother was looking over in terror, and as he's collapsing with his legs giving away, he said to Peter, Don't be afraid, son! <laughs> like fucking hell! 
Your legs have just collapsed under you. You might be dying. You're like, don't be afraid. And I was like, that's fuck. What a life lesson. Uh, yeah. And that's what I mean about like not being negative about violence. Who about accepting all this and saying none of this detracts from the magic of your fucking life? Suffering, death, violence, all this shit does not mean your life is any less poetic than anything else. What a fucking lesson. Fantastic. You know? Um, I'm going to open this up to the audience because... I've been hogging, David, and I'm sure someone's got some good questions here. So, if anyone got anything they'd like to ask. I think it's unlikely that a woman's going to draw a big, huge cock inside <laughs> like a mammoth. i got to be honest with you. Although, Joe, are you going to tell me some of your pains, Sir Godana? Well, no, I understand. No, you're right. I mean, maybe not all of them. But I also, I read a police statistic recently, which is pretty interesting. See if you get your house burgled. And not only if you get your shit stolen, see if like, people do graffiti all over your house and like fuck it up. It's likely to be a young male somewhere between the late teens and the early 20s. Which is quite interesting. Mm. You know? Or, or maybe Joe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, Angus. This is like the TLS. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Birmingham sex by the Pogues is the answer. <laughs> is the correct answer. Uh, yes, I yes. a bit of porn star for the East End of Glasgow. When I say that now, I'm kind of like, actually, maybe I should rewrite that book, do you know what I mean? But there was, there was a cinema, um, where are you from? Bill. It's exact, do you remember? Well, maybe you're not quite old enough, I don't know, but there was a cinema um, just beyond East Bank School, up on the right-hand side, I can't even mean what it is, and it may, may even be demolished. But they actually used to show all our weird exploitation movies because I mean I lived I lived in Shettleston uh, in the uh, early seventies and I always mind they were showing like weird horror movies and stuff. So I had an idea. Imagine if it was a porn star, a male porn star for the East End that had his films only shown at that weird place in Bellston, basically. <laughs> <laughs> That's why he's dead. <laughs> hey, I know you're you're writing. Some new stuff. Can you say something about that? Well, I've got two new books coming up. I think my next book's finished. It's called Monument Maker. Uh, it's it's uh, it's a big. It's it's bigger. It's like quarter of a million words. It's more than I've ever written before, and it's quite Quar quarter of a million words. Yeah. Wow. Man. So maybe it's going to be like a double hardback and like a slipcase or something. I don't know. It's everyone's shitting themselves. <laughs> and also, it's a kind of about religious art. So everyone's like, no, what? But it's kind of like a love story set in France, in Ile-de-France, where the, the, the cathedral area, but also a meditation on religious art and how do, how do you, how do you, and also in a way, in a way it, tie, it does tie in a memorial device and for the good times, because how do you memorialize? How do you remember? And stone, it's about stone sculpture, stone lasts longer than anything else. And I'm a huge fan of, um, um, uh, Romanesque sculpture and, and the, the great French cathedrals. To me, it's my it's probably my favourite era of uh, art, and I, it's a big thing about 
and just how do we tell our own stories and how do we how do we keep them alive and our meditation on that. Because you were in France, weren't you? For, was that right? Yeah, yeah. I did this thing where like it was mental because I was really, you know, I, I'm really into Robert Louis Stevenson, man. I love him so much. I, I love Kidnapped is like my favourite book, man. Also because the guy's called David and my, my, like my aunt, Kath, <laughs> my aunt Kathleen for their doing actually gave me Kidnapped. But Robert Louis Stevenson is about David going about islands and dropping off a ship and running mental and... And I, I think it was the first book, even before that book at Airdrie that I was talking about, actually, Alistair, yeah. that Mr. Mr. Scobie was a part of. I think it was the first book that I was like, this is taking place in my life. I'm, David is jumping about islands in Scotland, and I, I, I think the topography of it was was vital for me. So anyway, I applied for this. I, didn't, I, I, I applied for this Robert Louis Stevenson Fellowship, and I got it, and it means you go to stay in a place in Ile de France. Where Robert Louis Stevenson uh, met his wife, but also were like fucking um, loads of really interesting writers and uh, painters lived, and um, it's also where a lot of the great cathedrals are. And so I spent like a month and a half like touring France, visiting the great cathedrals, and finishing off the, uh, this next novel. So that's done, and the one after that is going to be um, is it, is again. I'm about halfway through that, and it's very different again. It's called "I Am the Body of All the Conquistadors," and it's kind of about um, it's 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 like autobiographical. And it's about rivers, and again about my father, and about South America, and about boxing, and about violence. That's basically. Any other questions from uh, the audience? Okay. Um, so now that the book is out, as when I spoke, I think it'd been out for a week when we last spoke anyway, and now it's been out for a while and it's getting uh, reception. How do you, uh, have you changed your opinion of it? Do you change your yeah, opinion? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, in a way, yes. In a way, when people, when some of the reviews are like, oh my God, it's so violent, I'm like, is it? And I'm like, oh yeah, it, it is. But I was never, I was never uh, very conscious of uh, 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 of writing something that seemed particularly violent. But at the same time, I did want to give you the, the reality and uh, the repercussions of violence. I did not want to have this kind of Hollywood style of a slight stain on your shirt or something yeah. like that. I wanted to show the myriad ways that human beings uh, inflict suffering on each other. Um, but I think, as I said earlier on, one of my biggest revelations has been I, I often find people trying to turn that around and say, well, we end up, you say violence is bad. And, and, and I'm kind of like, well, I mean, well, what the fuck did you expect? If you knew that already, why did you read my book? If you just want to have your ideas confirmed. And I, mean, I think, well, art is not didactic. I, I'm not, this is not a commentary on violence and I'm not coming down and saying it's bad. I'm showing how do you survive reality without judgment, yeah. wherever you are. How do you still say? How do you still say yes to that? It's like Ellie Wiesel book uh, um, about living in the concentration camp. What's it called? Uh, man's quest for meaning or something like that. Yeah, man's quest for stories are what puts man's man's meanings together, and that's my whole point. And, and I guess what I've realised is that yeah, I wrote an incredibly violent book, and yes, it is not a solution to violence. There is no pat endings. No. In fact, it begins all over again, and I don't think that's I personally do not look to art for solutions or for pat commentary on things that we all fucking know in the first place. I look to literature and art, as I said earlier on, to sort of redeem our stories and to allow us to say yes to where we are, no matter how difficult that may be.
Well, with, with that in mind and talking about stories, I think you're going to give us another reading um, before we finish up here, if you don't mind. So I want to give you another side to it. I mean, there is a lot of heavy stuff as well, but it is quite funny. And one of my things I love about uh, the Irish Ireland and Irish humour, and which I love about, I think it's a very good way to judge culture in general, is it's um, a bit way to laugh at itself. I think that's absolutely vital. If we can see how ridiculous all of our posturing and our bullshit is, um, I think it's a sign of a healthy culture. And that's why I wanted to include a lot of jokes and things like that in, in the book. And also how we can use language to make it our own thing seem a little bit ridiculous. So this is a, this is a conversation that a bunch of guys um, are from the IRA are having in a bar after someone, one of, their, one of their members has just been killed. But your man Dale Brogan, your man Dale Brogan is kind of like, he's like a kind of club singer that some guys from the Ra are kind of like uh, boosting. Your man Dale Brogan is going on tour, Max says this. What about that? We're having a lunchtime drink at the Shamrock. Me, Barney, Matt, Fat Tam Tisher, aka the Dark Destroyer, is whatever they called him, on a kind of his laid back ways. And this fella, Jimmy the Grunt, all I ever did was fucking grunt. His uncouth as get out. Tommy must be turning in his fucking grave, I says to Mac. What are you talking about, Mac says? Tommy was his manager. Tommy thought he was a real talent. Fucking listen to that record they put out. It's a stone cold fucking classic. It should have been Tommy that was going on tour, I says to him. Tommy should have been in the London stage. Never mind this fucking punk rock comedian with his Rod Stewart disco numbers. Hey, Max says to me, easy. Your man Dale Brogan's brand new. Where did this cunt even come from, I says to him. Your man Dale Brogan, Max says. What's all the questions? Max sitting there with his fucking long hair. He's got a badge on that says Hawkwind. Fuck is Hawkwind? Barney says to him. Hawkwind's a fucking group, you prick. Max says. A fucking black nightmare, my friend. Sonic attack, he says to him. Barney's staring at him all confused like. The fuck is a sonic attack, he says to him. It's like a bomb made up of sound, Max says. That's what you sat at home and listen to, Barney says to him. Aye, Max says, they're fucking hip. Are they Huns or are they Tims? Barney says to him. What? They're fucking hot ones. Are they Huns or are they Tims? How in the fuck would I know, Max says. What? Barney says to him. You don't check to see whether they're Huns or Tims before you submit to a sonic attack from them? Have you heard that you too? The Dark Destroyer says, interrupting the both of them. My boy's into them. They're Tims, alright. 
was pretty Como a Tim, Max says to Barney. You can bet your damn fucking life Como was a Tim, Barney says. <laughs> he was a good Catholic. Never drank, nor swore. Plus, he was always faithful to his wife. I thought Como was a Jew, Max says. Don't fucking start this, I says to him. Como was never a fucking Jew, Barney says. He sang all those religious songs. All those religious songs in the fucking Hebrew, you mean, Max says. He probably did that because that's what they speak in Hollywood, Barney says. Who speaks in Hollywood, Mark says to him? The Jews, Barney says. That's what the Jews speak in Hollywood. So if you want to get right in there, you need to please the right people and press the right buttons. Have you ever seen a Hollywood movie, Max says to him? Are any of them in fucking Hebrew? I'm talking behind the scenes, Barney says. Don't get fucking smart with me. Besides, he says, Como's Italian. You try to tell me that's the home of the Jews? The Jews don't have a home, Max says. That's the whole point of Israel. Exactly, Barney says. The Jews are exactly like the Catholics. So as even if Como was a Jew, he was as close to being a Catholic as he can actually be without getting permission for the Pope himself. <laughs> Catholics have got their own home country, the Dark Destroyer says. It's called the Vatican. The Vatican isn't a country, Barney says. The Vatican is its own country, the Dark Destroyer says. Its own rules, the Navarin. Me and the missus goes there. Need a passport to get in and out. How many people live in the Vatican? Max says to him. A couple of thousand, probably. Dark Destroyer says. In that case, it's not a country. Max says, that's just a state. That's just a city state. Same difference to Dark Destroyer shrugs. The point is, you couldn't fit all the Catholics in the world in the Vatican, Max says. Just like you couldn't fit them all into the Free State. The Free State's bigger than the Vatican, the Dark Destroyer says. Besides, Italy is the home of the Catholics. We're talking the entire country. The point is that the Jews and the Catholics have got a fuck of a lot in common, I says to them. We're both up against that, I says. And that's the point that Barney's trying to make. Aye, Barney says. That's right. That's my point exactly. Como understands because he's up against it both ways. This guy has lived it. So you're admitting Como's half Jewish now, are you, Max says? Jimmy the Grunt lets out one of his trademark grunts. Listen. If he's descended from the Bible, then he's got a bit of Jew in him. I'll give you that, Barney says. My point is, at least we fucking know where we stand with Como and with your man, you too. But these sonic attacks, my friend, I wouldn't sit through one of them until I knew for a fucking fact that it wasn't the fucking Brits trying to erase my mind. Hawk wonder totally anti-establishment, Max says. Fuck does that mean, Barney says? Does it mean I'm not in the Queen establishing British rule in Ireland? Basically, Max says. Now we're talking, Barney says. But if they're so fucking anti-disestablishment, then why don't we get them over here and get them to do a fucking sonic attack for us? Why aren't the boys looking into these fucking sonic weaponries? 
picture it at Dark Destroyer says, Como shops up in Belfast. And the next thing you know, he's doing a sonic attack for the boys. Magic moments reduces history to dust. Everybody's killing themselves at this point. She's teaching Mandel Brogan to do these sonic attacks, the Dark Destroyer says. Get him into a bar of hot wins for the tour. Fucking the Raz new secret weapon. I wouldn't trust that cunt with a sonic attack, I says to him. Fuck is your problem, Max says. I don't know, I says to him. I just get a feeling he's a fucking hun in disguise. Sure, you can't go around making wild accusations like that, the Dark Destroyer says. That's dangerous talk. And based on what, Max says? Did your fucking medical baby see it in this crystal bollocks? It's just a Fiona, I says to him. It's just a fucking hunch. Somebody's feeding information to the peers. That's a fact. And whoever it is also responsible for Tommy getting whacked. And when I find who it is, I says to him, I'll fucking Sonic attack the shit out of him. Could just as easily be you, Max says to me. Don't fucking even go there, I says to him. Don't you fucking dare. I don't give a fuck who you are. But if you fucking say that again, I'll put my fucking fist down your throat. Easy. Easy. The Dark Destroyer says. Go on, man. We all need to calm down. This is what they want. This is how they intend to divide us. I love Tommy, I says to him. I fucking love that guy. There are no secrets between us. Jimmy the Grunt gives out a low fucking grunt in response. I stand up and I look round the table at a lot of them and I walk out of there with a fucking word. Thanks. And if you don't have a copy of For the Good Times, and I think even uh, as this memorial device is for sale over there, and David is very happy to sign a copy for you if you catch him after we finish. Um, so before we uh, end up, I'd just like to say a few thanks. I'd like to say thanks to Craig on sound at the back there. I'd uh, thanks to everyone at Mono for uh, hosting this tonight. Uh, thanks to Faber Books for putting it on, which is fantastic. <laughs> Thank you all for coming. It's been a f I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I've had. It's been a great night. And uh, last but not least, thanks to Chris McQueer over there. Yeah. And thanks again to David Kieran. My name's Ali Braidwood and it's been a great pleasure to be here with you. Cheers. <laughs>